Hello everybody, Dr. F. Scott Field here, and I'd like to introduce you to our newest sponsor. The NPTE Final Frontier is the review course that I wish was around when I took the board exam. For those of you who know my story, it took me a handful of times to pass that exam, and quite frankly, I really wish I had an, a, an exam review course around, uh, just like the NPTE Final Frontier. Uh, check out their website, npteff.com, and use the code HET at checkout for 10% off to all of our listeners and fans. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. F. Scott Field, and I've got with us today a guest that we've been uh, friends with for a long time, but finally able to, to track down and get on the show, Dr. Jason Falvey. Jason, tell us a little bit about your academic journey and how it's led you to where you're at today. Oh, well, it's been a long journey, but first, thanks for having me on. I love the, love the show. Glad, glad I can contribute. You know, to my background, I, I don't know if many of your listeners know, I'm from rural Maine. I, you know, grew up in Washington County, which is a, a small, small rural area on the east coast of Maine and a town of 600 people and a little lobster fishing community. So I grew up certainly as, a, as somebody who didn't think that physical therapy or graduate training or college education or maybe even high school education was something that uh, was a worthwhile endeavor. but I was very fortunate to get a scholarship to go to physical therapy school at Hudson University in Bangor, Maine, in a three plus three program, which are almost non-existent nowadays, and then worked clinically in rural areas in Maine and Wyoming, um, as in, mostly in home care, and generated some good clinical ideas, and now I needed some research training, so moved in 2014 to Denver where I did my PhD in rehabilitation science at the University of Colorado Institute's medical campus. And so that I did you know, work on home healthcare clinical trials, home healthcare big data, got lots of training in epidemiology, uh, which I continued to do at Yale as a fellow. And so I spent two years at Yale with uh, Dr. Mary Tonetti and Dr. Tom Gill and was able to I did a lot of great training in clinical geriatrics as well as epidemiology of aging. And that really uh, shaped my interest in how to look at neighborhoods and poverty and how socioeconomic disadvantage influences what we do as, as therapists. Um, and landed here in Baltimore at the University of Maryland School of Medicine where I'm in my second year on the faculty starting my research agenda and getting my lab up and going. Yeah, that is quite the journey, my friend. And again, you, you've done some amazing things along the way. So, you know, I appreciate that. And again, thank you for all you're doing for academia and for the world of physical therapy and rehab and just healthcare in general. You know, it's it, it's not easy to do a lot of this stuff. So I think the good thing is by having you on the show, we can address a lot of different points along an academic's journey. And, and I think one of the first ones that I'd like to dive into a little bit is uh, let's just talk about tenure track. Let's start there. Not all universities have it. The ones that do, it's a pretty lengthy, laid out process. Tell us a little bit about tenure track and what that looks like. And I'm happy to share. And my, you know, my bias will be, I hate the concept in general. It does <laughs> seem I'm, like it's dying. It seems like tenure track has kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit. Yeah, even though I am embedded within the tenure track and, you know, I understand why it exists, but I think the historical basis for tenure in terms of 
allowing academics to be more innovative and take on more risks without uh, and teach you know more controversial topics is has kind of fallen by the wayside and it's really um, I, I think it's disadvantages many populations. I, I think it's far beyond the scope of this podcast to talk about the inequities in the process, um, but they exist across racial and economic and gender lines. But in, in terms of what that means is I'm, I'm embedded in a, in a track where my primary responsibility is research. And so 95% of my time currently is funded to do academic research projects. So as a physical therapy faculty member, I spend strikingly little time actually teaching future physical therapists, which I find sad, but also necessary to move forward a robust research agenda with federal funding. That being said, the, the tenure track line is really geared towards you know, scholarship, getting publications out, applying for grants and you know, large grants where you're managing a budget and multiple people's salaries and and seeing a project through from inception, getting it through the regulatory process of the IRB, and then seeing the process through in terms of execution of the study, writing up the results and getting it eventually and hopefully published in a peer-reviewed academic journal. Yeah, so that brings us kind of to, to our next topic I'd like to touch on a little bit, academic grants, right? Grant writing. Again, not a simple task, not something that... Uh, a lot of people do, and, and the people that do it don't always enjoy it and are not always successful. Tell us a little bit about grant writing. You've done a bunch now. Let's, let's hear about that process and what that looks like and, and how you've been able to navigate it. Yeah, so grant writing is certainly a skill that is an art and a science. So I, you know, my undergraduate major before I declared for physical therapy school was actually in English. And, and <laughs> And that was probably the most helpful skill that I've had now. Right, as, right. As, guilty, <laughs> guilty as charged. I was an English major as well. Yeah, and it, it's, a, it's a great skill, but it's certainly writing for, you know, literary criticism and writing for academic uh, scientific grant writing is very different. And very it's different. A little bit of a learning curve, but how I've navigated is really taking a look at what are the review criteria? And I think I've gotten better as a grant writer as I become more familiar with the review criteria. What are reviewers looking for? How are they reviewing? Reviewers are busy people like all of us. So we really have to do a good job in that first page of specific aims of a grant to really convince people that we're studying something that's important, right? And it's not important just because we haven't studied it before, but it's important because it influences patient health and quality of life. You know, as a geriatric therapist, I really think about how does my clinical experience lend itself to, you know, explaining why this is such a critical problem to solve. So I, I research aging in place. So I really try to focus on the, the humanistic aspects of why people spending time in their own home, you know, while they're recovering from an illness or injury is so important. And so I'm grateful that I've had great training in grant writing from my PhD advisor, Dr. Jennifer Stevens-Lapsley. I, I got fantastic training and how to, how to write grants and how to you know, anticipate what reviewers might be looking for. Make sure that you are humble, that your grant and your, your research project is well thought out and well executed, but understand that if something goes wrong or there's limitations to your approach, how are you going to address it? And how are you going to acknowledge that, you know, what this grant can solve and, and what it really can't? 
And I, I think the, the, the things that people try to do in grants is they try to take on too much. You can't solve every problem in one grant. So you really have to keep a, a focus on a really important clinical question and be able to answer that and leave yourself an opportunity to build on that by either expanding that program bigger or implementing it in a wider variety of sites or a variety of patient populations. Or if it doesn't work, understanding the mechanisms of why it didn't work and maybe focusing in a second study on populations that are you know, potentially more likely to benefit. But understanding all that in the grant writing process and knowing how to sell that in a six page limit sometimes for, for some of these smaller grants is, is a challenge. And I think it takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of rejection. And for every bit of success I've had grant writing, I've had several grants that have been not discussed, that have been in the bottom 50% or not viewed as important and you know, roundly criticized. And I don't post those on Twitter, but they happen too. And maybe I should be better about posting failures too. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, hopefully a lot of people recognize that social media is, you know, a lot of times the the upside and the positive side of things. But, uh, you know, we I, I, at least I try to I, I post a, a lot of my L's in the in the social media column from time to time, because I, th I think it's, you know, people need to recognize it's not always rainbows and butterflies and happiness. And, you know, yeah. sometimes it's uh, it's it's rejection after rejection after rejection. I think uh, one of my first uh, CSM topics that got uh, approved finally um, was, uh, you know, after six years of, of applying and trying. So, you know, it, it didn't come on, on trial number one, you know. Um, but realistically, I, I kind of want to talk about then maybe the next step. So, so you've written some grants, some have gotten uh, approved, and, and that, you know, is wonderful, obviously. This current study that you're working on, this current research agenda that you're starting to build now there in, in the Baltimore area, uh, tell us a little bit about the, uh, the Enhancing Rehabilitation to Improve Community Health, the Enrich Lab. Tell us a little bit about that program and what that's going to look like. Yeah, so this, this you know, lab name really manifested out of my career development award. So they're, you know, it's kind of eponymous with it. The Enrich um, study was really about engaging community and municipal stakeholders in the recovery process for people with severe disability um, that are recovering in you know, socioeconomically disadvantaged neighborhoods. So it's a big mouthful, but it really gets at the idea that there's a lot of inequity and a lot of intersectionality between poverty and disability, um, and especially among older adults. So growing up in a high poverty and also a high proportion of disability county, working clinically in several of the same areas, it really motivated me to study um, how living in a resource poor area might influence your recovery. And that's from things as simple as accessing transportation, it's for things as simple as you know, having access to community level support, people meals on wheels wanting to go to your neighborhood or being able to get to your rural county, um, getting social supports. So my current study is really looking at how neighborhood environments impact the ability for people to um, access healthcare and how it impacts their ability to stay at home after a catastrophic injury like a hip fracture but we're going to pair some of that with like experiences from patients and caregivers and clinicians that are working with these populations and 
there's certain things that data can't measure and I wanna know about them um, and put all those pieces together, the data pieces, the non-data pieces to say, how do we fix this, right? I don't wanna just document that this is a problem and then move on. I think that's, you know, that, that kind of helicopter disparities research is really disingenuous to the communities you're trying to help. So we really wanna build on it and say, from a community perspective, what, what does the community need? How can I provide that in an intervention? Let's test it out and see if it, it works, or at least we have some proof that it works and then apply for a bigger grant to, to roll it out and, and get the community members as equal partners with the researchers to, to implement this and make it sustainable. Um, so my lab, you know, the Enrich lab is really about how do we bring rehabilitation into communities in a meaningful way um, and as a home care therapist, that's so important. You're, you're embedding into somebody's culture, you're embedding into somebody's home, and you have to adapt your interventions to, to meet those contextual factors and, and to, to align with them. And so my, my whole idea of the lab is to do a better job bringing rehabilitation into the community and making it, um, making it work to improve population health. Yeah, you, you hit so many high points there that I'd like to just touch upon real quick, Jason. I mean, I, I, as somebody who teaches geriatrics and has been a home health therapist for years and, you know, worked in SNFs and, and, and other uh, geriatric settings, I, I could see the difference in the areas that I treated in, right? I was in Hawaii for a little while doing home health on a, home, um, a travel contract, and there it was actually culturally almost like a slap in the face if you didn't accept a gift if they they offered you a gift which most of them did whereas most of the times you know you're taught hey you're, you're going in to do your job and you get out you don't accept gifts you know whereas over there they're telling you no no you have to accept the gift culturally it's what you have to do that you know it shows that you're, you're thankful and, and they're that you're accepting their thanks to you right rural texas here right in the middle of nowhere I, i've been out there 30, 45 miles, uh, you know, out through a cornfield and a cow pasture. And then all of a sudden you make a left at the dirt road where there's a mailbox, right? And you go in there and it's, it can be a scary, you know, situation if there's literally nothing around for miles, you know, and, and you, you're walking into a situation where you don't know exactly, you know, what's going on. And I've been in some really scary situations where, you know, even adult protective services have had to come in because it was so bad. So it definitely, you know, the documentation doesn't always tell the full picture, you know, and it's, it's experiences like that where you're actually having to be thrown into that setting and seeing what's actually going on to understand it. So I can really appreciate that deeper dive that you're trying to get into. Um, tell us a little bit about how your your experiences to date and and kind of your thought process in formulating your research agenda. How did that all kind of come together? Because it seems like it's it's luckily the the experiences you've had leading up to now have really done a good job preparing you for putting this big project together. Yeah. So. I mean, it all comes down to, you know, one very alliterative phrase that I've been using more frequently and more working on a paper to describe this. And it's the poverty penalty. Like the poverty penalty on health is not a new phenomenon, right? People that have, are lower socioeconomic status have several disadvantages, higher chronic disease burden, um, you know, more likely to experience physical disability. But one of the things I really wanted to highlight is the poverty penalty, you know, this mobility inequity and the poverty penalty kind of melding together. So how does mobility disability, you know, intersect with poverty in a way that makes it multiplicatively worse? 
And, and I think of it in a few ways. If you are a very, you know, if you're living in a very low income area and you are somebody who is perhaps living below the poverty line, you have a higher need for community mobility. You have higher balance and gate demands because you're walking over uneven sidewalks and cracked sidewalks that are much more likely to be present in lower income neighborhoods. You're walking around streets and, and people in Baltimore literally told me this on Monday night that their streets have garbage that's unpicked up and it's you know and actually debris that's in the middle of the sidewalk. A young person, that's a nuisance. An older person using a walker, that's a complete barrier to being able to walk down a sidewalk. I'm in a massive fall risk. So they need higher balance and gate demands and maybe a higher level assistive device to be able to navigate. But they might live in a subsidized housing or a trailer, which doesn't allow them to use a rollator, for example. So Medicare would only cover a cane or a walker, you know, whatever they need to walk around inside their house by federal statute. So federal policy is really saying, we only care about what you need to walk inside. And, you know, wealthier people, if they, you know, had that situation, they could just go and purchase a four-wheeled walker out of pocket, $100, $150 where that is something that's completely unfeasible for somebody who's living below the poverty line to go and spend out of pocket. People living in high poverty are also more likely to rely on public transportation in urban areas. Highly disadvantaged areas are more likely to rely on public transit. They're less likely to own cars. Um, but when's the last time a physical therapist that you know has ever worked on accessing public transportation with a patient? It can't be done in home care under most circumstances because that person has to be considered homebound. You know, it can't be done in some circumstances as an outpatient therapist because outpatient therapists are often asked to treat multiple patients at the same time um, or have several patients in the clinic at the same time, even if they're Medicare, even if they're not billing for both patients simultaneously, they have two patients in the clinic or they're on such tight time schedules that they can't bring somebody out to practice getting on public transit that disproportionately disadvantages the lower income population or a poverty penalty. Um, you know, and then in terms of just being able to uh, access high quality healthcare, you live in a high poverty area, you're more likely to get home healthcare from an agency that has lower star ratings. You're more likely to receive nursing home care from nursing homes that are more poorly staffed, often by therapists. Um, so there's a lot of research that's either out, you know, getting ready to come out or has already been published that has kind of highlighted that poverty phenomenon. And I think it really disadvantages people who want to get around in the community, more likely to be homebound if you're high poverty. Um, and then obviously the quality of life really decreases. So that was the major motivation. I saw it as a clinician. I saw it when I was growing up. My father is a current Medicaid beneficiary living in a trailer who experiences some of these barriers firsthand. Um, and I've had to help him navigate that from afar. So I think those are all real experiences that have motivated this line of research to, to come and, and start to do that here in Baltimore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I, it seems like your life experience has led you to a really great spot now and a, and a good place to kind of look into these things. And I think two of the major themes here that kind of uh, intersect with, with your study is uh, population health, right? And, uh, and the social disparities in healthcare, right? 
those kind of seem like uh, two major themes that we're hearing a lot more and more about over the last couple of years, especially in the field of physical therapy. And I feel like physical therapists are going to be primed to be able to interact and really make an impact on those two themes. What do you see for the future uh, as far as physical therapy goes when it comes to like population health or working it with some of the social disparities in healthcare? Yeah, so I'll take the population health one first. I think that is a different overall, you know, kind of objective. And I think the PT focus on population health is really important, right? We have to start thinking beyond impairments. Range of motion and, you know, muscle, manual muscle test grades are not meaningful outcomes to patients. They're not meaningful outcomes for population health. They're you know, important intermediaries for understanding how we're progressing and making sure we're keeping patients safe you know, in terms of our interventions. But we really have to think more broadly and measure things and, and have outcomes in physical therapy you know, that are focused more on community mobility. You know, are you getting out in the community? Are you socially participating? Are you able to go to church? Are you less socially isolated than you were before? things that have real, meaningful, tangible impact to both patients and the healthcare system. Um, so that's my challenge to anybody that listens to this. If you take nothing else, stop writing range of motion goals as the exclusive way to measure recovery for your patients. Participation-focused care should be what your you know, whole philosophy is. Get people out in the community doing things that are meaningful to them. Um, and then in terms of social disparities, right? We, we should care about population health for everybody, but we may need to invest a lot more time and resources in to make sure we're doing that in an equitable way. So there's several populations for whom we could apply the same intervention and we're not going to get people that are racial and ethnic minorities in some cases to the same level that their white peers enjoy because we're not actually addressing some of the unique barriers that they have. We need to do more investment there. You know, socioeconomically disadvantaged populations where, where I spend a lot of my time studying, you know, we have to think more beyond just physical therapy. We have to think about how to link in municipal resources. You know, how do we get the communities, the community government, you know, how do we get public transit systems involved in getting our patients access to care that they need? Um, so I think we really have to be thoughtful as we think about implementation science, as we think about population health, how are we making sure that our interventions and the things we're focusing on are equitable and getting to everybody who needs them. Some of that is on us, but some of that is you got to start asking those communities what they need. You need to start partnering with patients and caregivers and advocacy organizations. We shouldn't be developing you know, innovative models of care to me, it's not innovative if patients and caregivers aren't at the table guiding what you're doing. Yeah, and I, I hope, uh, you know, we have a, a big audience uh, that ranges from, you know, professors to students. I hope that both uh, areas there will take that in and realize that, you know, it's something that we can be teaching towards and learning. Uh, and that there is going to be, I think, a big opportunity over the next couple of years for new graduates uh, looking to help out in some of these areas. So fingers crossed, they're taking to heart what you're, what you're talking about here and they're listening closely because I think this is a, a big shift that we're gonna see uh, that really may help uh, a little bit of the, the factor of, well, you know, the debt to income ratio for physical therapy is, is not great. 
Uh, so I don't know if it's a worthy profession anymore, right? Well, there may be some new opportunities that come in that, that pay a little bit differently that won't be based on a reimbursement system that could kind of help, uh, you know, address that a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I think there's so many untapped markets for physical therapy in general, so many untapped roles in terms of, you know, care coordination and, and ways to help people navigate care. I, in fact, the intervention I'm developing has a PT as the quarterback where they're not just delivering interventions, but they're helping coordinate resources. You know, I'm, I'm literally holding a Maryland handicap placard application right now that I need to mail to one of my patients. It doesn't have any patient information on it but, <laughs> um, yet, but it will, but I, I have to mail that to patients, but I work in a clinic and, and have a vision for the, um, for my research that allows therapists to work to the full scope of their license. Not everything is a CPT code, yep. you know, not everything is, you know, a, a, a rug level. Right now, what we're doing is participation focused care. And that's what I teach. That's what I preach is get patients doing things that they love. Stop, stop it. If you're measuring manual muscle tests as a primary outcome measure and trying to convince patients that it matters. It doesn't matter to patients. Ask them what matters. Think about participation. Think bigger. Yep. Amen, brother. I love it. I love it. Well, Jason, tell us a little bit about uh, what, what's on the horizon for you. What do you see for the next five, 10 years? What's your vision of what you want to be working on and doing? Yeah, it's a great question. So I am currently in the first year of a five-year career development award from the National Institute of Health. So uh, it's a, it's a Beeson Award, Emerging Leaders in, in Aging Research, and I'm very fortunate to, to have that grant. It's a, it's a relatively rare opportunity, but it provides a substantial amount of funding that allows me to, to really build out this work. So the next five years is, you know, take, finishing the data analysis that we're doing with Medicare data now, kind of highlighting this poverty penalty for some very uniquely vulnerable populations, um, and we're, we're starting to engage with stakeholders that are paratransit users that, that re rely on public transit to get out in the community and what are the facilitators and barriers. Um, we're also working with stakeholders from the clinical side and asking them what is you know, holding you up from being able to do this participation focused care, what reimbursement, what policy things need to change, what clinical practices, you know need to change to really take the handcuffs off you and allow you to, to do what you need to do to get patients out in the community. Um, so the next couple of years are really focused on that. And then we're really going to start building out the intervention in years three through five and testing out with you know 10 people to see, can we get people out in the community and can we measure that in a really reproducible way and start to apply for bigger grants where we can figure out what factors really matter in keeping people at home after a hospitalization, keeping those days high quality, you know, how, how do we keep people at home and not homebound, able to do things. So that's conceptually, you know, what the next five years are, is building out of the intervention and trying to get some funding to sustain that. Um, and then, you know, I've already have some PhD students um, who are working with me in, as a part-time students um, looking at disparities and rehab use for some of these populations and really understanding what are some of the barriers, what are the populations that we're missing with our interventions that we need to do a better job reaching. So, you know, we're trying to address both the data needs, you know, the community needs, you know, I, I'm out in the community on a regular basis, you know, distributing flyers and working with 
community stakeholders on some of these issues. And I hope to continue to build those relationships and, and take what we're learning and bring it to state and local policymakers here um, and say, here's you know, some local issues around transit and maybe go to the, the national and talk about issues that older adults in general might have accessing public transportation or getting out in the community and be able to use my platform as somebody who's an expert in disability management to highlight the unique vulnerabilities of older adults, um, especially those who are, are living below the poverty line and, and find out ways that we can equitably serve them. And, and maybe that's through a Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation Project Maybe that's through some sort of large healthcare system collaboration, um, but there's lots of opportunities, I think, and I'm, I'm really thoughtful and hopeful that we'll um, be able to move this line of research forward over the next five years. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a massive undertaking, uh, but if anybody can do it, man, I think you're, you're the guy for it. So I, I look forward to, to following your journey and keeping up with what you guys are working on. Um, we have one final question that we ask every guest on the show. And that, that question is, if you could change one aspect of higher education, whether it be DPT or otherwise, what aspect would you change? How would you change it? And why would you change it? Yeah, so this is goes, you know, it's related, but maybe a, a slightly tangential to my research area. And it is, you know, financial strain among physical therapy students. And I, I don't think it's unique to physical therapy. I think medical students and medical residents and nurse practitioner residents and physician assistant students experience the same as we do not make it easy for people of low income backgrounds to seek higher education. We do not do a great job as physical therapists and medical schools do even worse of a job of getting first generation students and students from limited economic backgrounds into these programs. Um, and that is very intersectional with some of the racial disparities in PT programs that we, you know, we're seeing. And I think addressing some of the economic barriers would be in part a good solution to start closing that inequity. It's not the full solution, but it certainly would be helpful. So how do we do that? We do a lot better job as PT programs getting people support. And that's not just support from not having to borrow money. Sometimes the cost of clinical education is prohibitive. Students have told me in my program that they're scared of getting assigned away from their home because they don't know how they would pay for housing if they were away from their home for a clinical rotation for eight or 10 weeks. They're scared that they wouldn't be able to pay for internet and utilities. <laughs> They're scared that right now that with virtual classes that they had to pay for, um, you know, higher speed internet. And that's been a really big burden for them. The ones that have children have had a lot of financial burdens related to childcare. So if there's something we can do as programs to reduce the financial strain and stress for students so they can actually focus not on working three jobs like I had to going through PT school, but they can actually focus on some of these bigger, broader issues. Our students are so smart. They have so many innovative ideas and life experiences. And if we could reduce their stress, you know, from external things and maybe allow them to be creative and flourish in our programs along with their didactic education, I think we'd all be better for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, the, the number one most given answer is cost of, you know, graduate school and PT school and whatnot. But I think that that is even a different approach at a different look at it. And, you know, I think it definitely includes a lot of DEI stuff as well. And just, you know, like you said, like, 
making it more accessible to everybody. You know, I know we know we're not doing a good job of it. Now we have to we have to really take the steps to address it, make sure that we're trying to, you know, make it uh, an even playing field for everybody. And, and like you said, just boost it up and support the people that that need it, you know. Yep. So. And some programs do a good job. You know, we have desperately, you know, listened to these pieces of information as a program here at Maryland and put more resources in place and more guardrails. But, you know, we could always do more. And yeah. I think, you know, some programs, if you have nothing in place, finding some way to even support emergency needs or somewhat, you know, um, you know, and, and make that very visible to students so they know how to access the resources. And that was some of the, the, the concerns that I, I've heard from other places is, yeah, those resources exist, but we don't know how to access them. And I think it's really important that we are visibly showing students that we care, we recognize these issues, and, you know, we have ways to support them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jason, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. Thank you again so much for taking the time to come on and uh, educate our audience on all things that you're doing these days and, and have been doing for years. So uh, it's been, been a pleasure to finally get you on here. Where can people reach out to you and, and contact you if they have more uh, questions or just want to follow your journey and see what you're up to? Yeah, so I'm pretty active on Twitter. So my Twitter handle at jrayfalvey um, is, you know, I generally post a lot of updates from research and you know, what I'm doing professionally and the occasional personal anecdote or you know, funny throwback photo. So, you know, be, be, uh, be aware that it's a occasionally, you know, snarky sarcasm and, you know, uh, life anecdotes from me, but a lot of professional updates, that would be good ways for you to follow what I'm up to. Um, you know, I'm easy to find at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. I'm in the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science, uh, and also in the Department of Epidemiology and Public Health. So you can find me through either of those pages and, and find my linked faculty page um, and just email me. I'm usually, you know, pretty, pretty able to, to at least, you know, say hello, respond to some requests and, and happy to chat through any of these issues with people. Um, if you have people that are interested in these issues and want to you know, do PhDs or, or other things, I mean, feel free and I can certainly you know, give you information about our program or others that uh, may, may be able to support you. And then I'm happy to uh, collaborate with people that are interested in these areas and, and share some of my experiences and, and maybe help with um, you know, implementing or, or guiding any projects that are, you know, touch on the things we talked about today. Awesome. We'll uh, drop all those links in the show notes so that it makes it easier for them to reach out to you. Again, J uh, Jason, thank you so much for your time, man. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, no, I'm so, so glad I could finally come on and uh, yeah, look forward to look forward to more chats with you guys in the future, I'm sure. Absolutely, man. Look forward to it.